0: All right, so we have ourselves another Friday night Bible study. We've been going through the festivals. We've been talking about the fall festivals and the spring festivals. But we're going to depart from that a little bit, and we're going to talk about one of these verses in the New Testament that are really, I guess you'd say they're, they're called problem texts. So they're difficult to interpret. But we're going to look at the verse, we're going to pick it apart and try to make sense of it, and I'm going to explain why it's considered a problem text, but let's read it first. So 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, and while you're turning there in your Bible, for those of y'all who've discovered Ark of Hope, our podcast, we're a house church, and so we have our kids as part of our service, at least some of the time. And so, if you hear them in the background, they're making a joyful noise unto the Lord. But in 1 Peter chapter 3, we're going to start actually back in verse number 18 to get the context. And then we'll really unpack verse 21, and we'll probably be talking about this for the next uh, couple weeks because there's just so much information here. I got three pages here of notes, and the notes are really, really small. There's a lot of information there, so I don't want to rush it. But reading in verse 18, it says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Quickened by the way means that he was made aware. This is one of those words that has been understood as referring to the resurrection. But it's most likely referring to the fact that Christ, when he died physically, was aware of the spiritual realm in a new and special way. Obviously, Jesus was very, very close to the Father. That's an understatement. And he perfectly followed his father's lead in his life. But when it says quickened by the Spirit, that seems to be referring to he entered into the spirit world now that his spirit had left his body. And so that's probably what the term refers to here. Because it says in verse 19, By which, referring to spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. So after Jesus breathed his last and he gave up the ghost, literally the word ghost there, uh, he gave up his spirit. That's when he then descended into this place of the dead and he preached to the spirits in prison. There's this concept of this descent into hell that's been very controversial In the early church, there's a version of the, not the Nicene, sorry, uh, get my creeds right, the Apostles' Creed, which mentions Jesus descending into hell after he died on the cross. And a lot of people have taken that and they've misunderstood it. The early church didn't take that to mean that Jesus experienced suffering in hell. They took that to mean that hell, Hades, is a reference to the place of the dead. Jesus went down there and he made a proclamation. Now, there were different interpretations of that proclamation, Some people have interpreted that to mean he gave people a second chance. Some people interpret that to mean that he preached to those spirits who were justified before in the Old Testament, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, those guys, and he was proclaiming a message of deliverance, that they had been held in this place called Paradise, Abraham's bosom, and now they were being set free. In this particular context, which is where the idea comes from really, it's not talking about human spirits at all. It's talking about the spirits that were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. So it's talking about these spirits who were disobedient in the days of Noah. Now, who are the spirits that were disobedient in the days of Noah? Well, if you compare 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and Jude, and they're right there next to each other, and it's not a a coincidence— these were letters, uh, especially Second Peter and Jude, that were discussed at length by the early church because they made reference to the book of Enoch, and that made some people uncomfortable. And so it kind of, you could say, held up these books receiving full recognition by the church because there was ample evidence that they went back to Peter and Jude as well. But because they quoted from the book of Enoch, there was this question of, Are these books scripture? Because we know Enoch's not scripture, but yet these books quote Enoch. Eventually, though, that was overcome by the fact that these books can be traced back to apostles. Just because they quote from an ancient book doesn't mean they necessarily believe that book to be inspired. So though they make reference to the book of Enoch, that doesn't mean they regarded Enoch as on the same level as the other books that were in the Old Testament. But it's a fact that 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and Jude refer to It's called Enochian literature, okay? So there was lots of traditions in the uh, Jewish culture about Enoch, and some of those traditions were very early. First Enoch is an example of one of those. First Enoch is not one whole book, really, when you think about it. There are lots of sections to it. And the earliest section, the Book of the Watchers, the Book of Giants, those are really early sections. And so they go back about 200 years before Christ. There are some other sections that appear to have been edited or they were written later on. So it's kind of like a hodgepodge of all these different traditions that are meshed together. But the idea is in Peter's day, people knew about Enoch, not just the slim reference that we get in Genesis, but they knew about these other traditions. But when it says that... Including Jasher? Including the Book of Jasher, yeah, that was another book... um, that's referenced in the old Testament. And there's a book of Jasher around today that's in publication. There's debate about whether or not it's the original Jasher. It's not the original Jasher in my opinion, because it shows evidence of editing from the middle ages. So there are certain terms that are used in the book of Jasher that I don't think would have been used if it was written in the days of the old Testament, but that doesn't mean that it couldn't contain authentic material that was later edited. And it was, um, brought up to date when it came to place names and such.
1: So, I've heard this taught that the spirits who were in prison, that this was, the the Ark and Noah, that that was referencing Old Testament saints in Abraham's bosom, hearing Christ come down and expound on the gospel. You're saying this is the fallen angels?
0: Yes, yeah, and the reason that I think that, and I'm not denying that Jesus went to, The dwelling of the dead, okay? They would have called that in Hebrew Sheol. Later it was called Hades. Hades actually was a broader category. Um, Eventually, we get this idea that over time people considered Hades to be the place of the wicked dead because the righteous dead were not in Hades. They were in heaven. Well, when did that transition take place? I think, yeah, the transition took place when Jesus came back from the dead. They no longer were kept. In Hades, but there was a time in the Old Testament where Hades, Sheol, was a reference to where all the dead went. And there was this gulf that separated the righteous dead from the unrighteous dead. And that's what's referenced in, Lazarus. the yes, the parable of, La- of rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. But I think that Jesus did go there, and I think that he did appear to those people. And I think there are references in the New Testament that support that, but this is not one of them. <laughs> this reference here is referring to Fallen angels, and I think we can say that with confidence because if you compare 1 Peter 3, 2 Peter 2, and you look at the book of Jude, I think it's Jude verse 6, it's only one chapter, Jude, so small. But if you look at those places, you can see that there are parallel passages, some of the same terms are used. It almost seems like the author of Jude was aware of 2 Peter. The second author of 2 Peter was aware of Jude. They were aware of each other's writings as they circulated, and that's why some of the terms are so similar. Or you could say, well, God's the one who inspired it. Maybe that's why the terms are similar, right? Um, we do believe that all of God's words inspired and inerrant. But anyways, when you compare those passages, it seems like we're talking about the same event. This was one of the biggest evidences from my perspective when I was in college about um, this whole Nephilim controversy, where the Nephilim come from? What's the proper interpretation of Genesis 6? Fallen angels, human women, having Nephilim offspring seems kind of bizarre. And uh, most of my professors didn't believe that. They believed that the sons of God were Sethites and the daughters of men were Cainites, Cainite women. And they had unequally yoked marriages, and God was displeased by that. And that was the majority view of all the professors that I had, at least the ones that I talked to. But I did find one professor who held to what's known as the traditional view because it was the view held by Jews consistently. And it was also held by the early church until about 300 AD. So the first 300 years of the church, this is what Jews and Christians actually agree upon. And he pointed out these passages. He says, I just want you to read. 1 Peter 3, 2 Peter 2, and Jude. And he gave me the verses, and I read them, and he said, they seem really similar, don't they? And I said, yeah, they seem so similar that I can't deny that they're talking about the same event. He said, well, in 2 Peter 2, what's being referred to? Angels. He says, that's right. In Jude, what's being referred to? Sinning angels, fallen angels. He says, that's right. So in 1 Peter 3, what is being referred to there? Well, sinning angels. Now, to confirm this, I was watching a video on Skywatch TV. And I think this was from, I think it was last week was when it was. And they brought on Michael Heiser. And I don't agree with everything Michael Heiser says, but he does come up with some really insightful things to say every now and then. And what he brought up is that in the book of First Enoch, it mentions Enoch descending to where the Watchers are. This is back in the days, okay, when the sin was first committed, okay, when those fallen angels came down and married the women and had the offspring, the Nephilim, the giants, But Enoch went to the place where they were imprisoned and the watchers said, Is God going to judge us? You know, is God gonna judge us forever? And Enoch's message to them from God as a prophet was, Yes, you're not getting out of here. And so what Michael Heiser argues is that as Paul often will use Adam to foreshadow Jesus, get the first Adam, he got the last Adam. Peter seems to be using Enoch in a similar way. So Enoch descending into this prison and speaking to the watchers and making a proclamation foreshadows Jesus doing the same thing. So what Jesus does is he goes down into this prison where these fallen angels are. These fallen angels that tried to mess things up in the days of Noah, perhaps try to prevent the Messiah from coming in the first place to corrupt mankind, to corrupt the image of God. Whatever exactly was on their mind, we don't know. But they were trying to no doubt prevent the coming Messiah. Well, Jesus shows up, and like Enoch of he also has a proclamation. And what is that proclamation? That proclamation is, I'm victorious. And Michael Heiser even mentions this, and I don't know if this is true, but he mentions that it's possible that whenever Jesus showed up, maybe they were wondering, well, wait a second. He's, he, he's dead. No. He's, he's in the place of the dead. Does that mean we won? And then Jesus says, No. No, you haven't won because I just atoned for sin on the cross and I'm about to come back from the dead. And I just came down here. I made this stop to let you know that you lose. Mm. And so that's the proclamation. Now, there are two different terms here in Greek that are used in the New Testament. There's one which has the root evangelism. So it's to preach good news. And then there's the other word, which just means a proclamation. It can be a proclamation of any type. So the word here is not the word for evangelism. The message that is being preached by Christ is not a message of, hey, if you believe in me, then I'll, I'll set you free. That's not the message that's being preached. One very common interpretation of this is that in spirit, Christ, okay, because he's God, he's eternal, he existed back in the days of Noah, right? In spirit, through Noah, he preached to people who didn't believe, and so they died and they went to prison. And so the spirits in prison refers to the people that lived in Noah's day. Noah preached to those people. And they drown. That's a very common interpretation. However, it seems to be a later interpretation. The earlier interpretations based on these well-known traditions, the context of Genesis 6, uh, the parallel passages in 2 Peter and Jude, it all seems to come together cumulatively to make a really good case that we're talking about the fallen angels. So what this is really interesting, or why it's really interesting, is because it talks about baptism next. So look at verse 21. This is that main verse. The like figure, so it's talking about the flood and the ark. The like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. So that's the controversy right there. Baptism now doth also save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Now, let's talk about... The connection between Jesus going down into the place of the dead and baptism. Well, it's pretty obvious that whenever you're baptized, you're being buried just like Jesus was. You know, it's a a representation of death, burial, and resurrection. But since this is in the context of Jesus not just going to the place of the dead, not just being dead in the tomb, but in spirit, preaching to these fallen angels, Michael Heiser mentions in, in this video that... Baptism in our minds should include this idea that Jesus is proclaiming victory. He's proclaiming dominion Mm -hmm. over these angelic powers that rebelled in the days of Noah. So he says that baptism is an act of spiritual warfare. You're, You're basically saying, not only am I saved, but I'm on the side of Christ. And as he is the general, as he is the conqueror, and has overcome the devil for me, as he went down into the place of the dead and proclaimed victory over those spirits, I'm victorious in Christ, and I'm saying that I stand with him, and I'm, I'm going to follow him as my uh, commander-in-chief. And early in the church, they would have these baptismal formulas where they would question people, right? They'd ask them questions, and they'd respond. And they were prepared, right? They were trained for all of this. Um, And one of the questions had to do with, do you renounce Satan? Do you renounce Satan? And, of course, the answer was, yes, I renounce Satan. There was this idea that when you were baptized, you were taking a stand against the powers of darkness. And so when we think of baptism, we generally don't think about that, do we? I mean, we think about the, the, the objective... Death and resurrection of Jesus, we think about our trust in those realities and how we're forgiven of sin, and that's all true, 100%. But we don't really think of the spiritual warfare element Mm -hmm. to it all. And in this text, it seems that what Peter's saying is when we're baptized, we are acting out everything that Christ did. We die, we're buried. And we resurrected, but in between his death and his resurrection, there was this proclamation of victory. So our act symbolically is proclaiming victory over those powers of darkness that are still at large and that one day will be judged in the same way these other angels are already experiencing judgment. And so to me, that gives a very epic quality to our baptism. I didn't think about that when I got baptized. You don't have to think about that. The the basic idea of baptism is death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, right? But this just adds another element to it that in the early church they understood because of the context, you know, the story of Enoch, the, the story of the watchers. That's definitely a story that for Christians, it's become so controversial we don't talk about it, right? We just don't discuss it. If you ask your pastor, like, what do you think about this particular idea of the fallen angels and the human women and nephilim like what's your opinion about that they generally rationalize it okay, that's the the mainstream view in seminaries or they just say well we don't really talk about that right we, we don't talk about that because it's so controversial it's divisive well it was such a big deal in the early church um, when jesus went up on the mount of transfiguration there's really good evidence to believe that he went up on mount hermon and in the ancient jewish mind What's significant about Mount Hermon? Mm-hmm. It, was it was where the watchers descended. and there was actually um, there was actually a demon worshiping cult that they worshiped on Mount Hermon. and there' been, there's been archaeological discovery of this cult and I forget the particular name, but it was a Greek cult, but it was a demon worshiping uh, cult because we know that according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, whenever you participate in these idolatrous feasts in Corinth, and that was the temptation to go to these parties where people are going to be partaking of these offerings, these sacrifices, they were sacrificed to the gods and, and you would be aligning yourself, right? You're not standing apart. You'd be aligning yourself with these false gods if you participated in these feasts. And he says that we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't sit at the table with demons because that's what these false gods are. But this whole idea that the gods of the ancients were actually fallen angels, and that's why we should have nothing to do with them, right. because we know what the fallen angels are.
1: So you said that the Greeks went to Mount Hermon and, and worshipped whatever they, they did, these things. Were they worshipping their gods? Like, I can't remember, Greek gods, because I never paid attention
0: I It was know. a particular, yeah, it was a per- and... and- I don't know which one exactly, and again, I just researched that, look yeah. it up. Um, but don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure it was Pan. Okay. And, and the god Pan is depicted as uh, a satyr, a goat god, right. you know, with the goat horns. And in, in the Old Testament, in Leviticus 17:7, 7, it mentions that uh, the gods that were worshipped by the Canaanites were goat demons, and, mm. and they they were they were demonic beings. Right, absolutely. But it it depicts them as being goat-like in appearance. So there seems to have been a connection between that. And, and I, I can't explain all that. We talked a couple weeks ago, or it was last week, about yeah. Azazel. Was it two yeah. weeks ago? It was
1: yeah. Wednesday.
0: Was it Wednesday? Okay, we talked about Azazel and how, according, again, to the Book of First right. Enoch, Azazel yeah. was one of those watchers. He was the worst of them. Right. right. And he was actually, it seems to be, um, he was put in a particular holding place, mm-hmm. somewhere different than the rest of the watchers. So his punishment seems to be worse. But some people believe that when they had the Day of Atonement, they took the two goats and one was sacrificed and brought into the Holy of Holies and the other was sent out into the wilderness, that that scapegoat um, was basically sent symbolically out to Azazel. And Azazel was imprisoned in the wilderness. And so this goat represented all that Azazel was, the wickedness, the sin. Mm -hmm. He apparently taught... Mankind to participate in war and taught them how to make weapons so they could you know kill one another and and so all of that information um, is mentioned in the Book of Enoch. Now again, I'm not saying and I want to make this very clear for anybody that's listening to this, I do not believe the first Enoch is scripture at all. Um, I don't believe that. I, I don't think that it has any of the. Um, any of the markers for inspiration or preservation, it is a hodgepodge of lots of material. However, there there does seem to be some authentic traditions included in it. Right. And the fact that the book of Jude does reference it, the fact that First and Second Peter seem to reference it indicates that they recognize there was some authentic material in it as well. I, I highly doubt that if we were to sit Peter down or Jude down and say, Do you believe Enoch inspired? I highly doubt they would say yes. They're they're probably going to say no, and that's because based on the information we have from this time period, the accepted canon, the accepted list of authoritative books that constituted the Jewish Bible, was the Law, of the Prophets, and the Writings, and neither none of those sections included First Enoch. Right. So First Enoch was a respected book because it supposedly contained information but they did not recognize it as inspired. It's, historical it's just uh, has historical information and and again like
1: Josephus, right?
0: Yeah, and so like there's good information in Josephus, there's good information in Philo, there's good information right. in the book of Jasher, but we have to ask ourselves since we're dealing with something that talks about the supernatural, right? We have to make sure it lines up with scripture. Right. Now this idea of the fallen angels being imprisoned the idea of this mixing of the watchers with human women and the giants, all of that can be supported in scripture. So we can say that right there is trustworthy, but all this other stuff right. we have to be careful about. So, And that's why I like how Michael Heiser he points out some of these connections. If there is a connection between this concept of Enoch going into uh, this prison, okay, or Tartarus going into the holding place of these these demonic beings, and preaching to them. If there's a connection between that and first Peter, then we could say, okay, well, that part of First Enoch, Peter's obviously making reference to it and he's regarding it as historical truth, so we should too. But that doesn't mean that we should say, Oh, well, he affirmed that and that, so everything else in the book should be accepted. Again, the book was written over lots of different periods by lots of different authors. Okay, it's not just it's not as if we speak of first Enoch as one book. Okay, that, that's kind of misleading because it's not just one book. Okay, it's a lot of writings, and some of them do appear to be authentic. We just got to be careful about it. But let's talk about now, and we will not cover this exhaustively tonight, and we'll get back to this next week. And this really goes along with Easter, because this is about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Right. And this is not an aspect of Easter that we generally think about. Like, what what happened when Jesus was in the grave for three days and three nights? Yeah. We don't usually talk about that. We talk about the cross. We focus on that. We focus on the resurrection. But what happened in between, we just don't discuss it. And that's because it's such a controversy. Today, there are so many. Just go ahead and look it up. Look up descent into hell controversy. There are so many evangelicals that I think they're on opposite ends. And I think these are extremes. You have one person over here. You have some prosperity preachers like Kenneth Copeland and others Mm -hmm. who basically say Jesus suffered in hell. I think that Joyce Meyer even went as far as to say something like that. Um, but you have these people over here that say Jesus went, he suffered in hell. That is absolutely wrong. Right. When he was on the cross, he said it is finished right. because he was finished suffering. It was over. Right. And, and when he went to prison, did he suffer there? No, he proclaimed something there. That He was victorious already. Right. Okay, the suffering was done. So that's absolutely wrong. But then you have the other side here, which denies it because they're reacting to this error. They're reacting to this heresy that Jesus suffered in hell. And so they say, well, he didn't go there. And, and they'll adopt interpretations of 1 Peter 3, 2 Peter 2, Jude, Genesis 6, that honestly, they sound more like uh, 19th century rationalists mm. trying to explain away the plain sense of the text mm. than they sound like faithful approaches to Scripture. So we got to be careful that we don't, we don't approach Scripture As if it's a naturalistic book. It's not. It's supernatural. And if you read something weird in a supernatural book, should that surprise you? I mean, should it really surprise you if you find something weird and strange in a supernatural book? No, it shouldn't. Unfortunately, a lot of Christians, though, what they're trying to do is defend the supernatural word of God in a naturalistic society where people are rejecting the idea of God, rejecting the idea of anything spiritual. And so what do they do? They end up downplaying some of these weirder things. Because they don't want Christianity to come across as weird. But Christianity is weird. It's true. And it's weird. And I think that honestly, if, if people are honest with themselves, it does appeal to us. Because we know there's more to life than what we're living right now. We know that there's a spiritual world beyond. And we have to have a reliable source of information for it.
1: It's the biggest conspiracy
0: theory. It, it, is, it is. And it's an absolutely true one. You know, the evidence supports it. But what happens is people, I think, they go, off, they go off the track whenever they try to experience the supernatural apart from a standard, which tells us what's acceptable and what's not. So you have kids today, and I took a picture of it, and I got on Katie's phone, and I meant to post it on our, our webpage, or our Facebook page, Arc of Hope. For those of y'all who are listening, we do have a Facebook page. But anyways, there was, I think it was at Target, I was looking in this teen section, and guys, there was a whole section that was Wicca, 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 mm-hmm. magic, uh, and it was like all beautifully designed, and it just seems so personalized and to girls. yeah, exactly to girls, to young women. That's what it was. And I was thinking, this right here is popular. I said, Katie, they wouldn't put this on the shelf if they didn't think it was going to sell. Right. And they're not. If you look in that same shelf, are you going to see anything Christian? There was nothing on that teen section that was Christian at all. The only religious thing that was on the shelf was witchcraft. And so what happens is people are interested in the supernatural. Young people are. So what do they do? They experience it in a way that doesn't have any. Accountability. It doesn't have any accountability. I took the words right out of my mouth. That's exactly what it is. They don't want a god that tells them you can't do this. So they pick up a religion like Wicca, which basically says you can do whatever you want to do as long as you don't hurt anybody. It, it's you. Be you. Mm-hmm. And so they can experience the supernatural without the standard. And it's bait and switch tactic by the devil and he's very yeah. successful yeah. in it and
1: in a they
0: good. are and they have no idea what they're doing so we as christians instead of downplaying the supernatural of the bible we need to put it out front and center and say yes it is supernatural right. and these angels these fallen angels some of them have been imprisoned but not all of them have been right. and they're still very active in the world today so when we as christians get baptized we are saying we acknowledge that there is a supernatural battle that's going on and we're taking our stand with christ and our standard, our 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 sword in this battle is the Word of God, and so that's how we need to approach um, this rising interest in witchcraft. And it it's interesting that atheism has taken on a new look too. You can take Wicca, you can take witchcraft, and you can mix it with atheism. Do y'all know right. that? You can be an atheist and believe in the supernatural, which is crazy. Yes. But basically, you take the person out of supernatural. Take the personal out. Okay, You make the supernatural impersonal Mother the Earth, the universe. Oh, my goodness, the universe. That's what you hear quoted every single time you're watching a TV show. The universe brought us together. The universe. That is a really alarming thing. Absolutely. So these people believe in some kind of higher purpose. But they take away the guy who would give it any purpose at all. If you take away God, there's no plan. You can't have a plan without a planner. You can't have a purpose without a purposer. But that's what they do because they don't like the idea of an authority figure. Or sin. Or sin. They don't, exactly. So they buy into the supernatural, which allows them to in their minds be free from all of that and that's exactly what the devil wants them to do. He right. he he knows I can't keep the supernatural away from these people. They want it desperately. Okay. So how do I get them I to, to be them. deceived? Yeah. I'll give them the supernatural, but I'll give it to them outside a biblical context. I'll tell them that they can be free to do whatever they want to do, but they still get to feel the power, uh, the mystery mm-hmm. of the supernatural. And so um so the
1: universe will actually
0: Right. So yeah, it's it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting seeing this from heaven and for those that are listening, we firmly believe in a preacher of rapture and we believe that whenever Jesus comes back to take his church out of the world, there's going to be a great delusion and we believe that what is being set up right now is that delusion. okay we we see this revived interest in witchcraft and paganism, the pagan revival, the neo-pagan revival. we see that as evidence that, There is going to be a lot of supernatural deception, and people are going to buy into it because they're already being conditioned for it now. And uh, that's probably going to involve um, extraterrestrial deception. We know, of course, from the Bible there's no such thing as aliens, but we do know that there are fallen angels. We do know that they dwell in the heavens. So they are, in a sense, extraterrestrial. And, And so we do know that these beings exist, and we believe they're already... Preparing people for that delusion. And so that's why we as Christians, we're trying to, again, instead of downplaying the supernatural and the Word of God, show people the connection between what the Bible's been saying all along and what's happening now. When people start getting interested in UFOs, whenever they start practicing um, occultic practices such as the Ouija board and they're trying to contact spirits, ghost, all, hunting. ghost hunting, all of these things, uh, even augmenting humanity, changing humans. AI. Uh, the Marvel movies, I mean, I like a good superhero movie, but there's this idea that there are these these beings that are, you know, they're higher beings, they're mixed, they're, they're demigods. Those, these are all popular ideas today for young people. And if, if the Mark of the Beast, if it is part of that, if it's associated with the Nephilim, and we don't know for sure, but I think there's good reason to believe there is association, then what if the devil offered someone power? What if he offered that? Well, what if they wanted to change their fundamental nature to find some value for themselves? Isn't that what they're already doing right now with a transgender movement? Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm going to change myself. I'm going to change who I am. You can't ultimately do that, but the idea is I'm, I'm a girl. I want to be a boy. I'm going to, I'm going to become a boy. I'm a boy and I want to become a girl and I'll change myself and I'll find value in that. I'll find fulfillment in that. And, if the devil was to offer something even more radical than that, radical and change, uh, something that would spiritually change them, um, they would probably line up for it. Yeah. Because again, you know that promise of power in, in our culture, where people are obsessed with yeah. Thor and Captain America and, and all these other superheroes, I know people in our family that would say, sign me up, I'm going to get in line. Yeah. I'm going to go get superpowers. And they're not going to think of this as worshiping the devil. They're not going to think of this as worshiping Satan. They're not going to believe in God to the very end.
1: Science.
0: Yeah, it, it's going to be a pseudoscience mm-hmm. where the supernatural meets our technology. And however that all is going to play out, we don't know. But again, we as Christians need to be preparing people for this. And when we share people or share this with people, they're going to think we're crazy um, for sure. But we, we need they already to sh- think we're crazy. But we need to show people how the biblical worldview makes sense of the data. I'll tell you what, right now, um there are a lot of people that are obsessed with ancient aliens. Yes. A lot of people are. They think that all Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. They're very obsessed with it. They think that all these Bible stories can be explained away with aliens. They'll reference the Bible a ton. They'll refer to Genesis chapter six and they'll say, Well, these aren't angels, these are aliens. And so we uh, agree. And so what what you can (laughs) do as a Christian and say is say, here's the thing. You're right there were highly advanced beings that lived in ancient times before the flood, okay? There were these beings that were, you know, half celestial, half terrestrial. They were called Nephilim. Yes. Okay? But you're duped into thinking that these are green men from Mars. They're not. They're fallen angels. They're the beni Elohim. They're the sons of God, okay? These made up God's counsel until they rebelled against God and they mingle with human women and why wouldn't people go with that? But they'd rather go with aliens. And I'll tell you why. God. That's it. That's why. They would rather go with aliens because aliens removes the idea of a creator who's in charge. But if you start talking about angels, oh, if you believe in angels, you believe in Satan. If you believe in Satan, you believe in God. You believe in God, you believe in a ruler and authority and who we're going to stand before one day, who we're going to stand in judgment before one day. People don't like that. And so rather than facing the truth, And experiencing you know the the tough reality that listen, I'm a sinner and I need Jesus and I need to admit that and reach out and accept his gift, rather than doing that, they would say, No, that doesn't sound good to me. I don't like that. That makes me uncomfortable. And so I'd rather go with this other option. But the Bible makes perfect sense of it. And and I can remember when I was in I had just graduated from high school. It was summer of uh, 2009 and I was visiting my stepbrother and he showed me the first episode I think it was or one of the first episodes of ancient aliens Mm -hmm. and I could not explain it away like because he was talking about all these ancient monuments and the way they were built Mm -hmm. defy you know the technology that they're supposed to have at that time even modern you know technology in some cases has a hard time explaining how these things could have worked and so uh, I didn't know how to explain that but after reading Genesis six and properly understanding it, it just all clicked. clicked all and I was like, wow, I don't, I don't feel, cause that really shook me. Y'all. I was like, I don't know what, what if I'm wrong about this? I, I don't believe in aliens. I don't believe in that at all, but how do I explain this stuff? But then when you properly understand again, Genesis six, that it, it all makes sense. And when I shared that with him, um, he got really interested in it. And I, and I've shared it with a lot of people who they've never heard of it before. I shared it with my cousins, and they were like, "Well, I've never heard of that before." And I gave them some resources, and they were eager to to learn more about it. So this is one of those things that it's it's yeah, absolutely, it's what it would dictate. So you have to check your brain at the door to come up with something else. But there's
1: also the whole thing of you know um, giants in America, and a lot of like burials and mounds, and the cover up, and, and the cover up. I mean, there's a lot of books on this. Absolutely. The yeah. Smithsonian, one, I forget the guy's name, this one specific guy in the Smithsonian, covered it all up. Um, going back from like mm-hmm. 1960s. And, yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm reading. The 1920s. And there
0: absolutely. And that were
1: part of that, that, you know, it, again, covered up. Yeah. So these are reliable servicemen.
0: Yes. Yeah. And then. It, and it, it's it's a an accepted thing. It's It's an absolutely accepted fact that this all happened. Because I'm reading right now, just for fun, I'm reading this book by uh, Buffalo Bill. It's his autobiography. Yeah. Yeah. And he mentions in this book that, you know, him and some other fellows, they met up with uh, a couple of Pawnee Indians who came into their camp and they had with them uh, this giant thigh bone. And one of the guys that was with them, he was a medical doctor, I believe. And he looked at it and said, This is human. This is a human yes. thigh bone. And, and so they asked him, like, Where'd you get this thing? What's this about? And they said, Well, that belongs to the giants. You ever heard of them? What do you mean? There were giants and they lived, you know, before the flood and they didn't, they, they cursed the great spirit. And so the great spirit sent rain and flooded them and killed them. Mm -hmm. And and so it's like, Whoa, that sounds a lot like Genesis chapter six. It really does. And, and there was not just the story passed along, but there was also the physical evidence as well. Physical evidence, which like you just said, Scott has been Mm -hmm. uh, covered up. And there are a lot of people that, again, they're trying to bring the evangelical world uh, this kind of evidence to get their attention. and mm-hmm. it, But, you know, this is interesting. It's lumped often. The study of the giants of Genesis chapter 6 and how it will play into the end times. It is linked mm-hmm. with a preacher rapture. It's linked the with the imminency of Jesus' return and the days of Noah mm-hmm. and seeing these signs coming to pass. So the people who believe in this stuff about Genesis 6... Are often the same ones who are saying, "Look, we need to look up, because Jesus is coming back soon." These are the people that take Bible prophecy seriously, and it's the people who don't take Bible prophecy seriously. They're the same ones who would downplay the supernatural mm-hmm. uh, background in all of this. And so, uh, to me, that's a a big, a big indication that we're on we're on the right path if our literal interpretation of Scripture is. Is lining up with these things mm-hmm. because that's ultimately what it's all about. It's not about the traditions, as as wonderful as the traditions are, and and maybe helping us get more detail and corroborating our view. Uh, ultimately, it's what the Word of God teaches that we base our views on.
1: Well, I think that with the U.S. government pushing the UFO narrative now, that that makes it even more yeah. like imminent.
0: Uh-huh. Absolutely. Uh, Real quick, guys, and this is where we'll stop. I'm going to go ahead and give you the three different views on verse 21, and uh, we'll unpack those next week. But verse 21 again says, The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So in what way can we say baptism saves us. Mm -hmm. We are going to enter this conversation, this discussion with the assumption as a congregation that believes in free grace, that salvation is by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. So you're saved the moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ for eternal life. However, this is in the Bible. And though it's, and so though elsewhere, the Bible makes it clear that salvation is a free gift and it's by faith and faith and baptism are not the same thing. Correct. We need to understand what this says because it's God's word. So the first view is that when Peter refers to the removal of filth, when he says the putting away of the filth of the flesh, okay, that filth is sin belonging to our sin nature. So when he says flesh there, flesh will be a reference to our sin nature. Paul often uses the word flesh and refers it um, to our sin nature. So what Peter would be saying here is I'm not talking about this. So I'm, I, this whole parenthetical statement here, it's in parentheses in the King James. It's basically his disclaimer. Before y'all think that I'm saying something that I'm not, let me clear it all up for you. When I say baptism saves us, I'm not saying that baptism removes our sin. Our sin. And that's because the only thing that can remove our sin is the act of the Holy Spirit. And so just as the flood is an Old Testament picture of salvation, baptism is a New Testament picture of salvation. So it's symbolic. So when you're baptized, okay, you're acting out the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. You are publicly saying that I place my faith in these things. And that faith is what saves you. So when you're put in the physical water, that is a picture of you having been immersed in the Holy Spirit, being put in the body of Christ. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that's what saves you. The physical act doesn't. It doesn't remove filth from the flesh. So that's the first view, and that view makes a lot of sense. The second view, though, I prefer. There are three, and the second one I like the best. The second one says that Peter is not talking about the flesh as our sin nature. So when he uses the word flesh, he's talking about something bodily done. So this is basically what he would be saying here. Um, He's saying that when I speak of baptism saving us, I'm not talking about a physical act wherein our filth, our sin is removed. So I'm not saying that baptism is us having our sin removed from a physical act because that couldn't happen. The only way it can happen is through the supernatural act of the Holy Spirit causing someone to be born again when they place their faith in Jesus. So then what would baptism be? So in the parentheses, the first thing he's saying is this is not what I'm talking about. This is not baptism. The removing of filth, sin from our lives a physical act. You get dunked in the water, that's not going to take away your sin. That's not what I'm saying. And then he'll go on and he'll explain, well, baptism is the answer of a good conscience towards God. And we'll talk about what that means in a second, okay? But that's what he's defining baptism as. Baptism is not the removal of our sin by being put in physical water, but baptism is rather the answer of a good conscience towards God. So that would clearly indicate that he's not saying that baptism is necessary for salvation. Now, the last view, and this is a very common view, this may be the most common view, and I'm just going to read my notes here because I I thought about the wording, and this can get real confusing real quick, so I'm just going to read what I wrote here. But Peter is referring to the physical act of baptism, which has the effect of literally washing off dirt. That is filth. In this view, the whole phrase, putting away filth from flesh, is a reference to water baptism. This is not what saves, but rather what it symbolizes, the baptism of the spirit. So basically, this view would say, Peter, when he talks about baptism saving us, he's saying, I'm not talking about the putting of the way of the filth of the flesh, and that being a phrase referring to physical baptism. Now, what gets confusing to me is why would Peter refer to baptism in that complicated manner? Why would he say the putting away the filth of the flesh or the washing of the body physically, removing dirt, if that's what's being referred to here? Why would he say that? That just doesn't really make sense to me. Uh, that doesn't, of course, argue against the view, but it seems to be a very roundabout way to say something. But basically, this view says that what Peter's talking about isn't baptism as an act, but baptism as a type. So baptism is symbolic and baptism symbolically saves us. It doesn't literally save us It symbolically saves us because baptism points to what the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus and our faith in that is what saves us. So baptism only saves us as a type, as a symbol rather than a literal act is what that third view would say. Yeah, anti-type. Yeah. And that's that's a more literal translation of the Greek word, which in the King James is like a like figure. So like figure means this figure, baptism, corresponds to the flood and the ark. So in the old testament you have a picture of salvation. That's the ark. Getting on the ark is getting on board with Christ, getting saved, and he takes us through the water. The waters of the flood. So the waters of the flood represent death, and he brings us through that. We, we pass through death to life. In the New Testament, the like figure, okay, or the symbol in the New Testament, which basically proclaims the same reality, is that we pass through the water by immersion, and that is a figure for salvation. So baptism only saves us <laughs> as a figure. It doesn't save, save us literally. Okay, so that's the third view. The reason that I think that the second view um, works the best is because I do believe filth refers to actual sin. I don't think that he's using the word filth to refer to dirt on your body. Mm -hmm. So I don't think when he used that term, he's envisioning you getting into the waters of the Jordan when you're about to get baptized Mm -hmm. and you're dirty and you get that dirt washed off when you get baptized. I don't think that's what he's referring to there. Uh, In fact, if you follow the usage of this term, Um, In the Old Testament, in Isaiah 4, 4, the word filth is used to refer to sin. And this is something Peter refers to in the context. Actually, in chapter 3, verse 3, I'll read the verse here. Um, He says, Whose adorning let it be not that outward adorning of plaiting the hair or of wearing of gold or of putting on apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart. In that which is corruptible, even the adornment of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of which is in the sight of God of great price. So this is referring to the daughters of Zion in Isaiah chapter four, um, and in also Isaiah chapter three. So in, in the context, if you're understanding his references, the references that he's using to the Old Testament, it appears that when he uses the word filth, in that old Testament context, filth means sin. So to be baptized, that doesn't actually remove the filth of sin. So I think what Peter is literally saying is, I mean, imagine if a Baptist was hearing this for the first time. They'd not heard of this verse, okay? And they're in church, and Peter was to get up and say, baptism saves us. We'd be like, whoa, whoa, And so Peter, I think, would say, not that this physical act removes your sin from you, but rather baptism is the answer of a good conscience towards God. So I'm saying that baptism as a symbol saves you, but I'm not saying that baptism literally saves you. It's almost like he put this parenthesis in there so we would know that he's not saying what most people think he's saying. There's so many people that takes this take this verse and they'll say this is saying you got to be baptized to be saved. And I think he literally put this in there so people wouldn't think that. So there's a lot of irony there. I, I've always been, I
1: haven't quite had a, anybody give me a- so why? What? What? Why do we get baptized? Why? Identification. I, I, okay, but why? <laughs> well, what I'm saying? well, okay, yeah. So where, so, where does it come from? Is it from the mikvah? You know, and the cleansing? Uh,
0: or no. I mean, I think that in general, it has the idea of cleansing, and so the right. mikvah was about that too, right? Sure. And but here's the thing: the Jews and God is all about symbols. I mean, he's all about symbols. Uh, I mean, not as many in the New Testament, right? I mean, what do we have? We have the two. We have baptism and we have the Lord's Supper. Right. But the Lord used symbols to communicate ideas to us because a lot of people are visual learners, okay? It, it, it brings beauty to life, okay? The symbols do. Uh, the pictures do. Uh, but it, it also... I think I think it does a good job of communicating truths in a way that we can understand. So Jesus
1: speaking only in parables.
0: Yeah, says, exactly. Yeah. So I mean, he could have he could have spoken a more uh, broken way. He could have said, "Okay, guys, are you ready to take notes? I'm about to give you 20 truths. Okay, 20 theological truths. You ready? All right, go." And he could have stated it like a dry theologian that no one wants to listen to, or he could have told it in a way that brought it to life. And so, all throughout the Old Testament, we have those images. We have those pictures in the New Testament. We have them too. Again, not as many, right? Right. But we still have them. And baptism is certainly one of those, but uh, it's the first act of discipleship. It's the first thing that we do. Now, believing is passive. We are receiving truth. Someone could share the gospel with you. And before you get a word out of your mouth, you've accepted that truth in your heart. Okay. Mm -hmm. No one sees that. Okay. So you could believe and get saved and nobody know. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, if you were to tell them in the next Second, well, I believe that. Well, then now they know, right? But but the first act that we we submit to God's will right. after getting saved is baptism. That's the first thing. It was not supposed to be held off for years. It wasn't to be held off for months. It was as soon as you have placed your faith in Jesus, okay. and, and and you and you are thankful for what He's done, and you want to start living life His way. Baptism was the first thing you did before anything else. And you did that publicly because you're identifying with the body and the body is not invisible. The body is visible. Obviously spiritually we're bound together um, in a way that can't be seen, but we are meeting together in a locale. Okay. Mm. We are physically here. And so when you get baptized, you're saying I'm one of these people. And that was the first, and that's why it was so closely associated with salvation too, because that's how people knew that you were saved is when you got baptized. Uh, and usually it happened immediately after. It's like the story of the Ethiopian eunuch, right. Right. right? I mean, it's funny. I was reading that today. Whenever he's walking along or they're riding along mm-hmm. and uh, he's talking with, with Philip. Philip's sharing all the gospel right. with him, probably talked to him about baptism and discipleship and all mm-hmm. that. It doesn't mention that Philip right. mentioned baptism, but obviously he did. Yeah,
1: this is, this is <laughs> because the guy, yeah,
0: yeah. So it's like the first thing apparently that came out of this guy's mouth was, Here's some water. Can I get baptized? Yeah, right. And, and Philip's like, well, have you believed? Do you believe what I say? Mm-hmm. If you believe, then yeah. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's funny. It's like the first thing that he said was, can I get baptized? Mm-hmm. But he was saved before that. And in that conversation, when he was talking with Philip, at some point he believed and accepted and Philip didn't know that he had. That's why when he requested baptism, he says, well, you have believed, right? I just want to make sure you actually believe what I'm saying. He's like, of course. Yeah. He's like, well, sure. Let's get baptized. Mm -hmm. So baptism was that first act wherein we publicly identify with Christ and we're proclaiming that we've been saved. And again, do we do? I mean, did God have to give us that? Couldn't he have just said, go tell somebody. You know, hey, I'm saved. Right. Go, go tell a church. Go tell some Christians that you're saved. Could he have just said, all right, if you're saved, eunuch, you tell Philip that you're saved, that you've believed. Okay? Or did God give a beautiful symbol that would mark this awesome occasion in this guy's life? And again, I think that that's why um, I love studying the Old Testament so much because God is an artist and he could have just given them a bunch of rules. He could, he could have just told them a lot of doctrine. But he did that and he gave it to them in a way that would express the truth in a way they could understand and appreciate. And so that's why I think God has given us baptism. But uh, we're going to go ahead and wrap this up with some questions. And then we'll unpack this more next week, okay? Because I've got to make these notes. It's my bad. Um, Cause I sent Scott the wrong notes, um, but I'm gonna have to fix these notes because there's just so much information here. I'm gonna have to take this like my professors would say when I was in college. I turned in my paper, my rough draft. It was 18 pages long, and it was supposed to be eight. And he's he said, buddy, you're gonna have. To, I've never had to ask anybody this before, but you're gonna have to cut out like at least seven pages. And I'm like, I can't do that. He's like, you're gonna have to. Cause you cuz I'm not I'm not accepting an 18-page paper. And so I'm going to have to cut this down a bit. But do y'all have any questions about um, these views, the basic views or about anything we've talked about really?
1: No? No, I think we asked them already.
0: No, you've already asked them. There you go. You got your answers. But
1: can we talk about that news article today?
0: Which news article do you refer to? About
1: the after rally. The Pentagon.
0: Are you talking about the, the UFO? Oh, yes. uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I didn't read the whole article, but that doesn't surprise me. I mean, yeah, UFO sightings are associated pregnancy. with unaccounted for pregnancies. Which is.
1: Report.
0: It's a Pentagon report, yeah. It's,
1: it's page Pentagon
0: report. It's pretty bizarre. Yeah. So, anyways, we're going to end on that note. All right. <laughs> Anyways, we, we will uh we'll get back with whoever is listening to this another time. God bless you and good night.
1: And now for the rest of the story.